The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode 27. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events happening throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends, and our podcast episodes frequently draw upon these classes and events for our content. This week, we are very excited to be bringing back Santa Fe Opera's Desiree Mays. We had already such a great response to last week's episode when Desiree talked about the real Madama Butterfly, and today's episode is equally as engaging and informative as she fills us in on some of the confusing plot points and Donizetti's blurring of fact and fiction in Roberto Devereux. I know there has been a lot of talk about Sandra Radvanovsky's portrayal of the Donizetti's three Tudor queens. There's been some really amazing performances that have happened so far, but I can personally assure you that the Met's Roberto Devereux is the crowning jewel of the trilogy. With brilliantly sung and powerful performances by Alina Garancha, Matthew Polanzani, Mariusz Kvichin, and Miss Radvanovsky, you will be hard-pressed to find a more well-rounded cast singing more beautifully together than you will find in this particular opera on stage right now. If at all possible, I urge you to find your way to your local Met Live in HD broadcast this Saturday, April 16th, to see a truly remarkable performance. And when you do go to the Live in HD performance, you will be so well informed and enlightened after listening to this terrific lecture. So without any further delay, I give you Desiree Mays talking about Roberto Devereux. Thank you, Roberto. It's lovely to be back. <clears throat> it took me a long time, three airplanes to get here yesterday. I could have been doing this in Covent Garden for the time it took. <laughs> But then I wouldn't have got to see you guys. And then it rained this morning. I was going to have a major walk. <laughs> what can you do? Anyway, it's lovely to be back. And yes, the books, uh, my books are cover five operas, and typically the five operas in Santa Fe, because that's where I come from. I'm the lecturer for the Santa Fe Opera. Um, and this year's book is literally hot off the press. I got it the day before I came. It's about this summer. So if you're interested in coming to Santa Fe this summer, uh, the book's there. The other one, the green book, has Madame Butterfly, in which I'll be speaking about here tomorrow night. And I forget what the others are in that. But do have a look on the way out if you would like those. Tonight, though, um, I'm so excited about this. And I was wildly excited when I heard the serious um, uh, performance in Santa Fe of the opening night. It was quite something wasn't it? Did any of you hear it? Who's going tonight? Some of you, yes. Okay, great. So, um, so this will be the warm-up. You'll have a good historical perspective, I promise you. But before we get to Roberto Devereux, um, I'd like to look at how we, how we came through history. I mean, how opera came from only being about gods and goddesses and ancient monarchies and the nobility to a romanticized story about an all too real and powerful queen, Elizabeth I of England, as depicted by Gaetano Donizetti in Roberto Devereux. Opera, of course, began as an amusement for the Camerati, a group of Florentine noblemen who met in a chamber, camera, Italian for room, camerata. They wanted to recreate Greek myths and the stories of Greek gods and goddesses and just gave them simple musical accompaniment. By 1642, Monteverdi really had a grasp on how opera would be composed and presented. And he wrote the coronation of Popea, in which the emperor Nero expresses his love for Popea. In the great love duet from that opera, the voices were scored as a, for a castrato for Nero, and a soprano sings Popea. I'm going to play a little of this to get that sound of that early love duet into your minds, because we'll actually go back to it. You'll be surprised a little later. In this recording, Nero is a countertenor, since we don't have Castrati with us anymore these days. <laughs> <laughs> Philippe Jaroski and Popea is sung by Danielle Denise. 
Let's hear how in the 17th century opera was about the voices. There's very little musical accompaniment in the sensuous love duet, Pur Timiro. The brief musical theme from the orchestra only comes in at the very end. Thank you. Opera in the 17th and 18th centuries was a form of entertainment for the aristocracy, generally presented in their mansions and palaces. No expense was spared in the magnificence that was opera. Operas lasted many hours and included the servings of meals and drinks, and often there was a full ballet in the breaks called intermezzi. If you go to Florence today, the gorgeous white Pitti Palace still stands where it did in the 17th century when Daphne, the story of a young girl pursued by the guard Apollo, and Orfeo and Eurydice played there. The aristocracy vied with one another to produce amazing stage effects and staging. The castrati were all the rage. This was the time of patrons' opera when the nascent art form was viewed as the delight of princes. Composers were commissioned by kings, princes of the church, or the nobility, who chose the texts and made sure that the operas glorified their persons, their values, and their way of life. Censorship was severe, composers had very little freedom, and actually were pretty low on the totem pole of society. Mozart chafed at the bit when he was ordered around by the Archbishop of Salzburg, his patron, who treated the young composer rather contemptuously as one of these lesser servants. Mozart made the brave decision to leave the Archbishop's court, which was unheard of at the time. How would he survive without a patron? He knew it would be difficult, but now at least he had some freedom as to how and what he composed. When in the midst of composing the magic flute, Mozart received a commission, actually it was more of a royal command than a commission, to compose an opera for the Emperor Leopold's coronation as the King of Bohemia, Mozart complied. He had to. He had very little money and a wife and two children to support. With his librettist, Mazzola, he promoted the kingly virtues of clemency and sovereignty in the plot assigned to him. This would please Leopold, but he also worked in the values of the Enlightenment, Christian and Masonic virtues of forgiveness and divine grace. In the excerpt I'm going to play for you, you can hear how Mozart had a royal coronation in mind when composing this music. This was what was expected of him, and this was what he wrote. This excerpt comes from the end of La Clemenza di Tito, complete with the coronation chorus and a hymn sung in praise of a noble monarch. <laughs> Thank you. 
amazing, isn't it? This sound that Mozart was creating in the midst of writing the magic flute and the famous Requiem. He was extraordinary. In the later bel canto era of the 19th century, plots still told of royalty, the nobility, and history, often with a major blending of the facts, since composers were no longer directly bound by the wishes of the nobility. Impresarios and singers now ruled the day. Castrati and sopranos were what people came to hear. The big productions by now were played in great houses that were built specifically for performances of opera. The nobility had their own boxes in these theaters, while the common people attended in the cheaper seats or even stood on the main floor. To this day, there are still royal boxes at the center of the first or royal tier in most of the great opera houses. I was once at Covent Garden, I remember, in a box quite close to the royal box on a night when the royals were in the theater. On those nights in London, they did, and I think still do, play the national anthem before the performance starts, and everyone turns to face the royal box, whose inhabitants stand and wave. This is a link to the past that's still with us. The queen to this day, our queen, Elizabeth II, is the patron of the Royal Opera. But I don't know if this actually translates into any money from the privy purse coming to productions. I hope it does. <laughs> but back to the 19th century, composers who were by this time tired of the licenses taken by singers with their music, they now sought to assert themselves by having the singers stay within the written score with no ad libs, no ornamentations or embellishments without the composer's permission. So gradually, the composer began to rise in stature. The great Giuseppe Verdi was a composer and a royalist. He fought nationalism in his operas and worked for the unification of Italy and for an end to the petty tyranny of tiny kingdoms that were dotted all over Italy. He worked actively to install Victor Emmanuel as king of united Italy, which of course happened. Not only this, but the rallying cry in the streets for Victor Emmanuel in those years was an acronym on Verdi's name. Viva Verdi was the rallying cry, and the graffiti sprawled on city walls, meaning Viva Victor Emmanuel, Re d'Italie, V-E-R-D-I, Verdi. Verdi was invited and accepted an invitation to be a member of Italy's first parliament with the blessing of the king. So while later in his career Verdi composed operas about ordinary people, such as Violetta and La Traviata, Rigoletto, the misshapen court jester, or Azucena and Marico, gypsies in Il Trovatore, he also addressed the topic of royalty and their role of leadership in society. In Simone Boccanegra, Verdi wrote of a man who was chosen by the people to be their leader and crowned as the first doge of the Republic of Genoa in the 14th century. When his politicians could not agree, Boccanegra demanded peace in the great chamber scene, the great council scene. He sang, Plebi Patrizi, murdering people, patricians, inheritors of a fierce history. I weep for Genoa and cry for peace and love. Here is a little of that powerful aria sung by Placido Domingo. <laughs> Yeah. 
You've all seen, know, and love that production. Yes, it's one of his great roles, I think. You know, Placido said years ago that when he got to be older and he was a baritone, the last piece he would sing would be Simone Bocanegra. That was about, what, five, eight years ago now. It's amazing. So, Two centuries after Simone Bocanegra, Elizabeth I arrives on the throne of England as the undisputed queen after much political wrangling. She and Bocanegra were, of course, both real people. So now we have arrived at a time in the history of opera where composers could compose operas about royalty, but without having to be dictated to by the royals of their time. There was always the censor to do battle with, of course, but that's another story. Now, since we're talking about the crash course and the evolution of opera, I'd like just to make a comment on where we are today in the evolution of opera. So much is happening. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that you couldn't get people to go to new operas. They'd die first. Now people are flocking to new operas, and there are many, many of them. So while we were loved, born, raised, all of us, on a love of the classics, Verdi, Donizetti, et al., it's true that the art form still has to evolve. And the direction in which we are moving at present, I think, is really intriguing. New operas range from extreme expressionism of a work like Wozzeck from Orbenberg, though that's already 1925, to a series of operas based on great literature, much of it on American literature, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Moby Dick, The Great Gatsby, even the contemporary book Cold Mountain, a Civil War love story set in the Blue Ridge Mountains that we premiered last summer in Santa Fe. Then there are those minimalist operas from composers such as John Cage and Philip Glass, operas based on American history and current events, such as Dr. Atomic, the story of the building of the, the atomic bomb, and of course, Nixon in China. Then there is another trend that I see in what I call meditative operas, such as Messiaen's St. Francis of Assisi, or Tan Dun's Tea, A Mirror of Soul, um, or there's, uh, there's Kaya Sariajo's L'Amour de Loin, an opera that is going to be presented here at the Met next season. We did the premiere of that in Santa Fe, and I fell totally in love with this piece. It's a, it's a very gentle work of love and longing. It tells a medieval story of a knight who loves his lady from afar in a poetic and a meditative style, in which there is little dramatic action, only poetry and music in what is a deeply moving experience. So that's something to look forward to in September. Now, all of these new operas are based on history, literature, current events, or meditation even, are our way of exploring where music is going in our time. Some of these operas will, of course, die on the vine, which is always a tragedy because so much work goes into putting a new opera together. You know, um, Donizetti used to put an opera together in about four and a half months. It takes about four and a half years now to, for people to be able to really begin to come to terms with a new piece. So what, what of the operas that I've mentioned, just touched on here, will represent us, will represent our time in the 21st century. A hundred years from now, it'll be great to be able to look back from somewhere and know which ones have survived. But back to Roberto Devereux. Now, if you think politics is tough in our time, don't bother, because in the 16th century, it was worse. Regardless of whether you were right, left, or center, fall out with the queen, and you could lose your head, literally. Elizabeth I's reign was soaked in blood. Her father, Henry VIII, beheaded her mother, Anne Boleyn, when Elizabeth was two years old. Elizabeth had her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, beheaded. Numerous ministers who fell foul of her for one reason or another were beheaded, including Roberto Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who was accused of being a traitor and lost his head at the Tower of London in 1601. So while some of the basic facts and people involved are correct in the opera, their story as portrayed by Donizetti, I assure you, is not historical truth. 
These people who are part of English history did not live the story quite the way Donizetti presents it. So I'm going to set the record first, straight first, and then we'll, we'll talk about what Donizetti did. Robert Devereux, Lord Cecil, and the Duke of Nottingham, who are all in the opera, were ministers of the Queen. They all came, of course, from the aristocracy. Their positions at court and on Elizabeth's councils were by right of birth. Free elections and a House of Commons were not yet part of the British system until much, much later. So the monarchy was all-powerful and totally autocratic. Elizabeth built an empire, but she always claimed that the welfare of her people was her first priority. She loved ritual and extravagant clothes, as we know from the portraits of her. She enjoyed the theater and attended many of Shakespeare's plays, so that puts these two together. She was his patron. Shakespeare and his company of players were actually called the Queen's Men. Elizabeth so liked the character of Falstaff, the fat, funny knight in the Henry plays, that she expressed a desire to see a play about Falstaff in love. Shakespeare responded at once and rapidly penned The Merry Wives of Windsor. More facts. Elizabeth I was born in 1533. She died in 1603, two years after Devereux was beheaded. This makes her actually 68 at the time of the opera. Don't tell that to Sandra Radvanovsky. <laughs> Elizabeth ruled for 45 years, becoming queen at the age of 25. Elizabeth I was known as the Virgin Queen, which just means she never married. Robert Dudley had been her favorite, whatever that implies, years before Robert Devereux was at court. Elizabeth inspired a cult of the Virgin Queen and was looked up to as both a virgin and a goddess. This was no normal woman. She was the supreme governor of the Church of England, the Protestant Church, and the present Queen Elizabeth is still head of the Church of England. Most of the root causes of wars in Elizabeth I's time were between Catholics and Protestants. Her British forces fought the Europeans, and under her command, Elizabeth built an empire across the earth. Robert Devereux inherited the title of the Earl of Essex, and he lived his life close to the royal court. He and Lord Cecil, the Secretary of State, were rivals for power. In 1598, Elizabeth sent Devereux to Ireland as the lieutenant governor, which was the highest position in Ireland, with orders to sort out the Irish question, because the Irish were being rebellious, Catholic, and defiant. Things haven't changed in some regard. They wanted to be free of the English. Devereux fought many battles on the Queen's behalf with an enormous loss of life, but he never managed to defeat the Irish. Finally, without the Queen's permission, he made a truce with the Irish rebel leader, O'Neill, and returned to London against Elizabeth's express command. Elizabeth and her ministers were furious that he had made the truce. He had failed in his mission and was judged a traitor. There is also some historical evidence that he tried to rouse the people and challenge the crown and Elizabeth herself. Devereux was tried and found guilty. The Duke of Nottingham was instrumental in his conviction, and he was beheaded at the Tower of London in 1601. So there was no love involvement between Elizabeth and Devereux or anybody else in the historical facts. But you can't have an opera without a love story. <laughs> So Donizetti uses a vast dollop of poetic license and invents not one, but two love situations, which, of course, conflict in the opera. He sets the characters, all but Sarah, in the correct time and place, and this production is in its historical time. Elizabeth I court in Westminster in 1600, but the rest is fiction. Now, since we are on the subject of royalty, let's hear part of the overture to Roberto Devereux, um, which takes as its central theme the English national anthem. You'll recognize it's in a minor key, but that's a minor fact. <laughs> uh, 
Um, the national anthem, of course, didn't come into being until 1745, long after Elizabeth's reign, but that didn't matter either. Let's hear a little of the opening of the overture. Not the usual rousing version we normally hear, right? But there it is, nevertheless. And that absolutely sets the scene. It's perfect to put in the overture to this opera. But why was this Italian composer, Gaetano Donizetti, so drawn to England and Scotland for the sources of many of his operas, including his most famous one, perhaps, Lucia di Lammermoor, which is set in Scotland? What happens in Roberto Devereux his inaccurate tale of England's royalty. Well, it starts in the Palace of Westminster. The ladies in waiting to Elizabeth the Queen are waiting, gathering. Amongst them is Sarah, the Duchess of Nottingham. The ladies notice that Sarah is crying. She assures them that she is saddened by a book she is reading, a story of Rosmunda. Now, this is a nice reference here by Donizetti to Rosmunda d'Inglaterra, the heroine of an earlier opera of his, in which Rosmunda, the mistress of Henry II, died at the hands of Henry's wife. Sarah identifies with the doomed Rosmunda, sensing the tragedy and loss of love also lie in her future. Since the court is a hotbed of scandal and gossip and intrigue, she dare not confide in the ladies, so she tells them nothing is the matter. In fact, she is secretly in love with Robert Devereux, and this secret is tearing her apart. As the Queen enters, all rise. Elizabeth is also in love with Robert Devereux. She extends her hand to Sarah, saying how happy she will be to see Robert again, and hopes to find him faithful and not the traitor which her ministers insist he is. She explains how she sent Robert to Ireland, but now he has returned, and now you all know what happened in Ireland and what the back history is. Elizabeth has a further fear that he is not faithful to her as a woman, and she wonders if she has a rival. Sarah's heart quakes. Elizabeth sings of Robert's love as a gift from heaven and hopes, quote, if his heart is no longer mine, the delights of life will be grief and tears for me. Here is that aria sung by Montserrat Cabellet as Elizabeth sings of love.
It's interesting in this recording I'm using with uh, Montserrat Caballet as Elizabeth, it's a very different way of approaching the role to the way Sandra Radvanovsky sings it. It's, it's fascinating actually to hear the two interpretations, as it is with all operas. When I come to doing, preparing these talks, uh, you know, there's always a choice of which recording do I use. Um, because no two singers sing it the same way and often I'll dip into different recordings. So today I'm using in the main this recording <coughs> with Jose Carrera singing Devereaux, Susan Marcy sings Sarah, Vicente Sardiniero sings Nottingham, and a very, very young Ferruccio Furlanetto is singing Lord Cecil in this production. Now he's singing um, uh, 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 Fiesco, right, in the Simon Bocanegra at the other end of his career spectrum. Julius Rudel is conducting the chorus and orchestra of Toulouse in this 1977 recording. Lord Cecil and Sir Walter Raleigh tell the Queen they believe Devereux is a traitor, but they have to defer to the Queen's authority. At this moment, Devereux arrives and kneels at the feet of his Queen. She is overjoyed to see him, as is Sarah but Sarah must keep her feelings to herself. Elizabeth dismisses everyone but Robert, and their dialogue is charged. Elizabeth first asks Robert for an account of his time in Ireland. She assures him she would never sign his death warrant and reminds him that the ring on his finger, which she gave him, would always be a pledge of safety for him. He simply has to send the ring to her in time of trouble and she will grant clemency. Then she turns to personal matters, reminding him of their love, but she's not sure. Life seemed like a dream of love then, but the dream vanished, that heart vanished. Robert does not respond, instead thinking to himself, the jewels in the crown have no splendor for me. He tells Elizabeth he has proofs of valor and obedience to offer her but not of love, she thinks. Robert slips and almost gives himself away, and Elizabeth is on guard at once, and they sing a furious duet, each lost in their own thoughts. Elizabeth, a horrible idea has crossed before my eyes. The traitress cannot flee from my avenging wrath. The faithless man shall die a bitter death, and my proud rival will be punished through him, while he thinks, my feet have arrived at the edge of a precipice. Only a hair's breadth separates me from the executioner's axe. I will fall, but will be the sole victim of her fatal suspicion. He will never reveal Sarah's name. Now, in this excerpt, even though the words may be angry, the music is simply gorgeous. And this is so typical of Donizetti. Thank you. out of the room as the Duke of Nottingham arrives and goes to embrace his friend Robert, but Robert draws back. Nottingham would do anything to save his friend. He tells Robert about his wife Sarah's sadness, about her 
secret suffering which he shares with no one. One day he found her, he says, in tears, sewing a blue scarf with golden thread. Robert wonders if Sarah is still faithful to him. Nottingham has no idea that Sarah is in love with Robert. He sings of her tears and his uncertainty in Forse in Quelcor. Sometimes doubt speaks to me, he says, but solicitous reason disperse the appalling suspicion. In the pure heart of angels, sin cannot enter. The next scene is in Nottingham Palace. Sarah sits alone, fearful of Robert's fate. He appears before her and accuses her of being faithless. She explains that during his absence, Elizabeth arranged a marriage for her to the Duke of Nottingham and insisted that Sarah accept. I was taken to the marriage bed, she sings, on pain of death. She counsels Robert to forget her and turn to the Queen, but he will not hear of it. She reminds him that he is wearing the Queen's ring, which he at once takes off his hand and gives to her. I would give my life 1,000 times for you. Here is part of their impassioned duet. Again, the melody is captivating, but listen, it has a very simple little waltz rhythm. Listen again for the unaccompanied ending, which Donizetti often uses, rather as Monteverdi did in that first uh, duet that I played you. When the orchestra fades away and the singers alone charm with their voices. Acknowledging their love for one another, they sing an impassioned adio before the act ends. Sometime later, Elizabeth meets with her ministers who inform her that Robert has been found guilty of treason and is, a is condemned to death. Walter Raleigh tells the Queen that when they went to arrest Robert, they took from him a blue scarf. Elizabeth realizes at once there is another woman. She demands that Robert be brought before her. Nottingham arrives first, however, pleading for his friend's life, but Elizabeth furiously denies, denies him mercy. Robert is then brought in, and Elizabeth calls him a traitor, not just to his country, but personally to her. She brings out the scarf and shows it to him, and in a magnificent trio, Robert realizes all is lost. The Queen condemns him and signs the death warrant, while Nottingham, Robert's strongest ally, on seeing the scarf and recognizing it as his wife's, realizes she is, is the secret love of his wife and is blind with fury. Here is just a little of that magnificent trio at the climax of this work, one of the many climaxes in this work.
Music truly is irresistible, isn't it? It doesn't matter which part that you play, all of it is gorgeous from beginning to end. It's amazing it hasn't been done more often. Anyway, after all this high drama, Nottingham returns home to his wife to have it out with her. Sarah waits alone in despair when a servant hurriedly arrives with a letter from Robert. She reads that Robert begs her to bring the sacred ring of Elizabeth's that he gave her to the Queen, for it guarantees his life. At this moment, Nottingham enters and catches Sarah red-handed, so to speak, for she has the letter in her hands. He demands to see it, he insists, and she has no choice but to hand it over. He reads then and tells Sarah he knows about the scarf she gave Robert the night before. He sings, perfidious woman, know that Robert is still alive. I preserved fraternal love for my friend. I loved my wife. For them undaunted, I would have defied anguish and death. Who betrayed me? My wife and my friend. What use are tears? I want blood, not tears. This is Nottingham. begs and pleads with her husband to no avail. Through the windows they see Robert being led to the tower prison. Sarah tries to run to the door to go to the Queen with the ring that will save his life before it is too late, but Nottingham bars the way and orders his guards to hold her prisoner. The next scene then takes us to the dungeon where Robert is held. This scene is a little reminiscent, I think, of Florestan in prison in Beethoven's Fidelio, where Robert sings tenderly of Sarah's purity, come una spirito angelico, and this is Carreras. Yeah. 
Robert hears soldiers approaching and assumes they have come with the news of the Queen's pardon, but no, they have come to take him to death. He leaves with the soldiers who lead him to the block. The final scene is in the Queen's chambers. Elizabeth is alone and wondering why her favorite lady-in-waiting is not by her side. She still does not know that Sarah is the other woman, only that Robert has been unfaithful. She waits impatiently for the ring that will allow her to pardon him to be brought to her, but in these last final moments, the ring still does not arrive. She gains control of herself as Cecil and the Lords arrive. Cecil informs her Robert is on his way to death as Sarah bursts in, falls at the feet of the Queen and gives her the ring. The horrified Elizabeth realizes at once that Sarah is her rival. As Elizabeth sends a man to stop the execution, a cannon shot is heard, and Nottingham runs in. He is dead. Elizabeth, convulsed with fury, accuses Sarah of Robert's death. Why did she wait so long to bring the ring? Nottingham replies, I, queen, held her back. I betrayed in love, desired blood, and blood I obtained. The raging queen has Sarah and Nottingham arrested, and in the final moments of the opera declares before one and all, I do not reign, I do not live, get out, I wish it, let James be Queen of England, King of England. And she sinks onto a couch, bringing Robert's ring to her lips as the curtain falls. So that's an opera with all the right ingredients, isn't it? <laughs> love, drama, death in love, they all die one way or another, their love dies. So, but in spite of this very romantic and wonderful ending, Donizetti fills this opera with wonderful, what I call, feel-safe music. There's nothing avant-garde, nothing shocking, nothing unexpected. It's a bit like wearing a warm, familiar coat. Music you can wrap around yourself and just revel in. It's that good. With great singers, Donizetti's music can carry you away luxuriating in that glorious bel canto sound of which, of which he was such a master. Donizetti's operas, and this one in particular, do not require extreme direction or production, though actually gorgeous costumes and sets really do add to this opera, and that's what we have in this production. As I said, great singers whose voices can master that perfection of sound in the ornaments and the condensers Make this a special night of theatre. Now, what about Donizetti's involvement with all these royals? Three Tudor queens, Anne Boleyn, Mary Queen of Scots, a.k.a. Maria Stuarda, and Elizabeth I in this opera. Donizetti actually composed and set eight of his 70 operas in the British Isles. Lucia de Lammermoor, the most famous set in late, uh, in late 17th century Scotland, was based on a story by Sir Walter Scott and called The Bride of Lammermoor. If you've never read that, that's something worth checking out. It's sort of an older English style of writing, but it is the story of Lucia. And if you love that opera, it's sometimes fascinating to go back and read those original texts. Scott was the leading romantic poet and writer of his day and influenced many many composers who loved the style. Donizetti's other English operas, apart from the Three Queens, are sort of a mixed bunch. He composed Alfred the Great, an opera with a <coughs> ridiculous plot in 1823 when he was 26. Clearly this was an apprentice work. <coughs> Emilia de Liverpool followed and also sank from sight. His opera cannot, you see what I mean? All these operas, we can have a composer today write, say, six, eight operas. Um, think of Jake Heggie. He has written many wonderful operas. Which of them will stand the test of time? Sadly, we won't be around to know. Our grandkids can tell us down, down the road. Um, he, but he wrote um, Kenilworth Castle, based again on Scott's uh, novel Kenilworth. And that opera focuses a book, story uh, on Robert Dudley, who was the Earl of Leicester, and probably the one man that the Queen did love. Dudley was married to Amy Robsart, who died mysteriously when she fell down a flight of stairs. 
And though never accused, people wondered about Dudley's involvement in her death. And because of the scandal, Elizabeth could not and would not marry him. Rosmunda d'Inglaterra is about Henry II's mistress. When Henry's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, found out about the affair, she had Rosmunda killed. A little more poetic license here, that's not what happened in real life. I really hope that American audiences are not learning English history from the operas of Donizetti. <laughs> you know, there's always that risk with all these operas. You really should go back to the source and, and try to find out. Donizetti, anyway, is a bel canto composer who was really primarily interested in beautiful singing and melody. If a story lent itself to musical interpretation, that was enough for him. The truth of the plot was really unimportant. He was a product of romanticism with its unrequited or impossible loves for generally impossible reasons, but all providing perfect excuses for glorious melody. And you need love stories to do that, yes, so we can allow him that license. Anna Bolena was a turning point for Donizetti for two reasons. By now he was well established. He was no longer at the mercy of theater managements and impresarios to produce operas at very short notice. At one point, as I mentioned, he really was composing an opera every four and a half months. I mean, can you imagine that? It's amazing. So they, they didn't all make it, of course, and sometimes if one died, he took the best bits out and put it in the next opera, and actually that was okay. The second reason is that while known for his opera buffa style, from Anna Bolena on, he turned increasingly to more serious subjects and treatments to a much more dramatic style. So Walter Scott was the poet writer who the composers turned to for ideas, Actually, think of La Donna del Lago, which was just seen here, right? That's set in the Scottish Highlands by Rossini, uh, but based very closely on the Walter Scott poem. In fact, when I talked about that, I could parallel the poem with the libretto, and they literally lifted one and put it into the other. Salvatore Camorano, who is Donizetti's librettist, actually didn't directly set this opera on uh, the Walter Scott, but on a play he saw in Paris in 1832, and an unsuccessful opera by Mercadante, who did use the original Scott. So I suppose technically Donizetti's Roberto Devereux is Walter, Walter Scott a couple of times removed, but it has the same sort of sense and feel. The Three Queens, as they are now called, stretched over a seven-year span of composition. Anna Bolena was first in 1830, focusing on the stormy relationship between Henry and Anne Boleyn, mother of Elizabeth, who was beheaded by Henry. In 1834, Maria Stuada tells the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, her confrontation with Elizabeth and their rivalry over the same lover, the Earl of Leicester. In this opera, and historically, Mary lost her head at Elizabeth, her sister's command. Now in 1837, Donizetti focuses on Elizabeth towards the end of her long reign in Roberto Devereux. These operas were never apparently intended as a trio, but that is what they have tended to become, thanks to some superb singers, most notably Beverly Sills, who made the Three Queens her own in New York City opera in the 1970s. Peter Gelb calls the trio operas Triple Crown. And Sandra Radvanovsky continues the tradition here at the Met. She prepared for this marathon by singing first Anna Bolena with the Washington Opera, Maria Stuada in Bilbao, Spain, and Roberto Devereux with the Canadian Opera to do that sort of tryout. She said she also visited the Tower of London to get a sense of how it would feel when she stood on Tower Green where the beheadings took place. When asked last week by the Guardian newspaper about the three queens, she said, it's been exhausting. I'm not going to lie to you. They're not easy operas. Singing bel canto is like walking on a tightrope, especially with a larger voice like mine. So it's constantly living like a nun, not going out, not talking a lot. I don't want to cancel a show because people have paid to come hear me sing the Three Queens. 
so I wash my hands constantly. They're raw from washing. <laughs> Might look for that today. <laughs> I'm going to the gym and really taking care of myself and trying to stay fit and eating properly. Anything I can do. I mean, the vision of some of these earlier divas going to the gym to work out in preparation. <laughs> We've come a long way, baby, us ladies. <laughs> We're in good shape. <laughs> she does, however, in this opera, I think, cultivate um, a regally powerful tone while also, apparently, and we have to see this, moving around the stage with a slight tremor. This is an affecting contrast that underlines Donizetti's dramatic rendering of an absolute ruler who cannot get the emotional commitment she most desires. That perhaps is the tragedy of Elizabeth in this opera. Temperament can really take a toll on the voice, she says. If you get tight in your body with acting, then you get tight in your voice. And then you can get tired and you can damage yourself vocally. When you do a messa di voce, that means you start soft, you crescendo into loud, and then back to soft again. Some people call that circus tricks, but in bel canto, it's really written into the music. And that's another thread with these three queens. In Maria Stuada, there's a lot of it. It's like training for a marathon. I have to do scales and get agility into it. So that's a little insight. I thought this was a nice interview of her take on the Three Queens. I think it was written just after she did that first performance uh, last week, which was so extra extraordinary. But it's not just Sandra Radvanovsky. This is a truly stellar cast. Matthew Polanzani sings Roberto Devereaux. Sarah is sung by the gorgeous Elena Garancha. And Marius Kvitschen, who was so great in Pearl Fishers, sings the Duke of Nottingham, a major player in this plot. I didn't play you much of his music, but he has much to sing and is one of the four leading characters in this piece. So Maurizio Benini conducts, and of course, Sir David McVicker is the director, staying true to the time and period, but with those gorgeous costumes and sets. So, so with that background, I hope it'll help with your enjoyment of the You would need no help enjoying the piece, but it gives you a little historical background and how we, how we need to think of history as one thing and what the composers do as something else. So thank you so much. If you have questions, I'll be here for a while. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to episode 27 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I truly hope that you will all have the opportunity to make your way to movie theaters this weekend to see Roberto Devereux live in HD. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review in iTunes. We love reading your feedback. We like hearing what you would like to see more of and what you've enjoyed thus far from our programming. And we are so grateful to those of you who have already left reviews and shared kind words with us. It really is inspiring as we move forward week after week creating these podcast episodes. We are excited to present a pre-performance lecture on our final new production of the season, Electra, next week. So next week's episode will be all about Electra and will feature Will Berger, who is a regular lecturer here at the Opera Guild and also is on the radio broadcasts at the Met. So until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.